And now, for your feature presentation. One, or two, or three, or four, five, or five. What's up, listeners, and welcome to the Force 5 Podcast, a show where I force my guests to come up with a movie-themed top five list, and then we reveal our picks on air. I am your host, ex-video store clerk, undiscovered screenwriter, that one's for you, Eric Holmes, and fellow listener, Jason Kleberg. Nowadays, when a studio starts promoting a movie, it's done by targeting people with Instagram ads, a well-timed trailer drop on YouTube, and a marketing team on Reddit trying to appear like a normal human being. But marketing films used to be a whole different ball game before the internet became popular. I'm going to take you back in time for just a moment. Picture me, eight years old, standing in the cereal aisle at a now defunct grocery warehouse style thing called Pack and Save that my mom used to take us to to get groceries. Out of all the choices, my brother and I got to choose one sugar cereal for the week. And I'll never forget a fateful day in 1989 when we looked up and saw Batman Cereal. Batman Cereal, yeah, from the very dark PG-13 Tim Burton masterpiece. Now, back in the day, it felt like marketing departments didn't really target anybody. They just targeted everybody. They put their product out to anyone, everyone, and getting to choose that Batman Cereal, little honey nut-flavored bat signals, allowed me, at eight years old, to feel like I was in the cultural zeitgeist, even if I was way too young to see the actual movie. But back then, this kind of cross-generational promotion was common practice. I remember my brother getting a Simon Phoenix action figure for his birthday. He must have been like 10 years old when that movie came out. Demolition Man, an R-rated film being marketed to youngsters through action figures and Taco Bell. Anyway, Jackson Boren came on today to talk about some of his favorite promotional movie tie-ins, and it was quite the walk down memory lane. I learned about some gems from him, he learned about some from me, and I'm pretty sure you will leave this episode with a fun little history lesson of days past. Before we get to that, I want to express some gratitude for everybody who watched, listened to, and contributed to the Hot Ones Challenge for episode 100. That was a really fun show to do. And again, if you want to check out the video, just search for the Force 5 podcast on YouTube. It will come up. And, uh, you know, throw me a subscribe if you want to. I'm going to be putting more movie-related stuff on there. So if you want to see more of me, um, I just put up an action scene from a 1988 film I just reviewed called Tiger on the Beat. Uh, And I'm going to be doing stuff like that along with, obviously, the, the show audio. This week, I saw a new movie that is in theaters right now. This film is called Fall. A horrible thing happened to you. I just want you to be able to move on with your life. It's coming up on a year. I have something that's planned, and I need a partner in crime. The B-67 TV tower. I haven't climbed since... Becky! If you don't confront your fears, you are always going to be afraid. Let's do it. Let's climb your stupid tower. Fall starts off with a little free climbing, a la Ethan Hunt in Mission Impossible 2. Three friends, Becky, Hunter, her best friend, and Dan, her husband, all share some playful ribbing as they claw their way up the face of a mountain. The joking, however, comes to an end pretty abruptly when Dan makes what I can only assume is a rookie move, stuffing his hand into a cave 
which releases a bird, startles him, and sends him down the abyss to his death. That happens in in literally the first five minutes of this movie. So time passes, and one day Hunter comes and visits Becky, who is not doing well, and says the only way she'll be able to get over Dan's death is to climb up to the top of this insanely high abandoned tower to sprinkle his ashes from it. Forget therapy. That's what we're doing in this scenario. So early in the morning, these two uh, women make their way up the tower, surprisingly ill-equipped for what was supposed to be a morning jaunt, but ends up being a lot longer. When the ladder used to get up to the top of the unit breaks off, leaving the two stranded thousands of feet up in the air. With no food, no water, and no phone signal, the two have to figure out a way off of the tower other than falling really, really far. It is very tough to make a premise like this work over the course of an hour and a half because the options the characters have to try are so thin. Films like Frozen, Open Water, and 47 Meters Down use a similar formula. The success of a film like this is twofold for me. First, does the setting itself give you anxiety? And second, do the characters make smart decisions? We'll tackle the second first. The characters in this film are not smart. We know this within the first 10 minutes of the film because they're climbing up this tower with only a 50-foot rope tethered between them and really nothing else. It's definitely a one-falls-they-both-die kind of scenario, and I, I gotta say, I'm no climber. But there's got to be a better way to do this. At the beginning, they have two cell phones and a drone, but they get no cell coverage on the tower. So uh, they drop one of the phones padded inside of a shoe lower to try and get coverage on the ground. Why not fly the drone down there with one of the phones tethered to it? There's just several moments here where the decisions these girls made baffled me. Now, the first point, inducing anxiety, fall absolutely delivers on its poster's premise. It's definitely vertigo-inducing seeing the shots of these girls at the top of this massive tower. I don't know how Scott Mann and his team shot this, but it works. The journey looks perilous, and every movement as the girls sit atop this rusty structure is butthole-puckering. If you're afraid of heights, you might want to avoid this movie. Now, I'm not afraid of heights, but there were moments, especially the inciting incident that maroons them atop the structure that put my heart in my throat. Unfortunately, the script for this film is not good. Written by Mann and Jonathan Frank, there are two glaring flaws. First up, we've got two late film twists, one that pits the girls against each other, a twist that was absolutely unnecessary, and I, I think it was only put in the film to add a few extra minutes of dialogue. Honestly, I think the film would have been much better off if the girls seemed like best friends and Hunter was more supportive versus the douchey, selfish sidekick we got. And the other twist was already done in 47 Meters Down, produced by the same people that produced this film. Not only was I surprised that they went there again, but the beat just felt really stupid here. The other flaw is how the film ends, which I'm not going to get into, but it was abrupt, anticlimactic, and eschewed some natural drama that could have been a layup for a shot at a rescue attempt. I actually wonder if something was scripted and just wasn't shot for budget reasons because it was a big time letdown. And then uh, Jeffrey Dean Morgan, he shows up for about two minutes in this movie, way underused, because I'm guessing he owed man something after their movie Heist that they shot in 2015. Bottom line, if you're going into fall looking for a perilous spectacle, you're going to be entertained. The film delivers on the danger it promises, and it looks fantastic. If you're looking for a well-written story with rich, interesting characters and realistic electronic gadget charging times, you're going to be let down. But I gotta say, there are worse ways to spend an afternoon at the theater. So last week for show number 100, I ate some really hot hot wings. And if you want some wings of your own, there's no better place than today's sponsor, 
Cluckin' Bell. And if you're near Los Santos or Palomino Creek, Cluckin' Bell is now taking sign-ups for their annual triathlon challenge called Beat the Cock, where you'll race Cluck Norris across town for a chance at winning free clucking huge meals for a year. But hey, even if you don't win, you still win, because Cluckin' Bell is dropping their foul wrap back down to 99 cents, and their little clucker kids meal is just three bucks. Inflation? The only thing that'll be inflating is your weight. Get to Cluckin' Bell today because their slogan isn't Cockadoodle Don't. Welcome back to the Force 5 Podcast. Tonight's guest, the first pass F5 century mark, is listener Jackson Bourne. Self-proclaimed Lone Waterworld fan and film enthusiast, you can find him on Twitter at Jackson Boren. Jackson, how are you tonight? Doing great, Jason. Thanks for having me on. This is great. I'm excited to have you. I've heard you on a few podcasts I listen to, including some I've done collaborations with, like Soundtracker and Film Shake. And on both of those, I thought you were a great guest, so I was really excited to have you on. But I was also really intrigued by your topic today which we'll get into here in just a minute. Uh, but before we do, I always like to give the audience some insight into your film tastes. So why don't you hit us with some of your favorite films of all time? And um, my guess is that they're all going to be 90s movies. <laughs> Actually, I'm going to throw you a curveball. Um, only, one, only one of them is a 90s movie. Nice. I'm going to kind of pull from the top of my list. Uh, first of all, I love the premise of your show because – I kind of process and formulate my love for movies and lists. Usually if I'm talking about an actor with someone or a filmmaker, it's like, Oh, that's, that one's definitely in my top five Yeah, or, you know, in that, in that way. So for mine, um, <clears throat> the first one I always got to go to is 12 angry men. Uh, the original Sidney Lumet. I watched 12 angry men for the first time when I was, 16 years old and was blown away by the places that the characters could take a story all while remaining in the same room. Yeah. Um, truly a masterclass from a, a murderer's row of great actors. I'm sure that that one will get brought up if we ever do like top five movies that only take place in one location. Second, uh, speed from 1994. Uh, it's my favorite action movie of all time. Maybe a hot take, but while some people consider a diehard, uh, while some people might consider it a diehard knockoff, uh, which it obviously has influence from, uh, I consider it an improvement on the formula. Yeah, yeah. And then um, Empire Strikes Back is another one that's up there for me. Uh, I feel like it's the perfect synthesis of everything I love about Star Wars. I think it's timeless. You know, the planets, the creatures, the relationships. John Williams score. Uh, everything was running on all cylinders with this one. And while blockbusters have gotten bigger and bigger in terms of their uh, financial success over the years, I generally think that they've been chasing the success of this film and its execution for like 40 years. So that that's another one that's up there. Um, and then last, uh, When Harry Met Sally. Uh, the appeal of this one for me is just how richly the performances of Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan uh, bring Nora Ephron's script to life. It's just yeah, chef's kiss. Uh, I just, I want to spend time with these characters. I, that's definitely a comfort movie for me. Those are probably the top four that, that come to mind for me. Solid picks there. Nothing that I'm going to argue with. Now, some of those, especially your Star Wars pick, probably had some promotional tie-ins. And 
You know, I thought this was a really thought-provoking topic. It brought me straight back to my childhood. I don't know how old you are, but I was a kid from the 80s and the 90s, and, you know, you used to go to the grocery store and see displays for movies that were in theaters, and you just don't really see that anymore. Um, what's your kind of take on movie promo tie-ins, and what inspired your topic tonight? Yeah, um, I know you you follow me on Twitter, and I follow you, and, and you can probably gather from that uh, that I'm what I would consider sort of a nostalgist of sorts. Yeah, um, I'm constantly talking about movies I loved growing up and why they keep impacting and influencing uh, what we watch today. Um, I'm eternally obsessed with the pop culture fabric of the 80s and the 90s because, uh, like yourself, I I grew up in the 80s and the 90s. I was born in 83. Um, I was interested in the various ways that we were marketed to because in the modern era that we live in now, a lot of the cross promotions and the, the movie tie-ins and the things that you're talking about, like in the grocery stores and everywhere we would see this, um, the, those things don't really happen today. No. We're, we're marketed too differently. So I kind of I kind of struggled with whether or not this would be a good topic for your podcast at first, because so many of your lists are just purely movie lists, and this kind of required us to look at look at these things from the strength of those promo tie-ins, but that also relies on the strength of the film as well. So the more I thought about it, the more I realized that these were all part of how we experience these movies in real time. So I was like, yeah, I I, I love this idea. Yeah, you don't really see those large-scale promotional tie-ins anymore. They happen here and there. But, I mean, when I was younger, they used to be everywhere. I, I, I mean, I know it's because of the internet now. You, you know, you log on to Instagram or Facebook or TikTok, and that's where people are being marketed to. But back then, it was toys. It was Frisbees. It was dolls. It was all kinds of stuff that you could buy, action figures. And before we get to our picks, Jackson and I did pare things down just a bit by not including action figures. Um, although, honestly, inappropriate film tie-in action figures could be a list of its own, like Rambo, you know, buying a Rambo yeah. action figure in stores, like marketed towards kids for a PTSD war movie. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that could be a list of its own. Did you put any other restrictions on yourself while narrowing down your list? Um, not really. The, the main criteria that I put on myself for this list was um, well, and, and I kind of allowed for an either or situation was first, how was, how impactful or memorable was the tie-in? And then secondly, was the product featured in the movie? Mm. And so were you able to purchase something that you saw on screen or was it just simply something that was influenced by the movie? So these were things that while they were not deal breakers for me. I was really trying to get either one of them or an overlap of them. And you'll see that as I go deeper on my list, uh, more of them have both of those uh, qualities. Got it. Yeah. As I look at my list, it's kind of a combo. I think only one of mine was like actually seen in the film that you could buy afterwards. And then other things were put out to promote the film before it came out or some were rushed out because the film was so popular. Uh, but yeah, I think I got a good mix here. I know you do too. Jackson Bourne, you ready to get to this list? Let's do it. You know what's going to happen? You know what's happening here right now? You know what's going to happen? No, 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 no. What? You just made the list. 
we want to say this top five promotional movie tie-ins, I guess is the way to say yes. it. All yes. right. Um, well, I'm going to kick things off here with number five. This is one that I actually had, and this is why I had to put it on the list. The, the movie came out in 1992. It's funny that it had these promotional tie-ins because the movie is Wayne's World. And, you know, it has this really famous scene featuring the ridiculousness of product placement in films. But at the same time, it was a huge hit. When a movie's a hit, especially in 92, you know it's going to have a ton of promotional tie-ins. Yep. There were promos with Butterfinger. I remember a Butterfinger thing where you could, like, send in five proof of purchases and get uh, a hat, like a Wayne's World hat, which I wish I got. Because that, be, that would be sweet to still be wearing today. The hat was iconic. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. There was a Super Nintendo game that was just like absolutely bizarre. But the one that I want to highlight here is one that, you know, depending on how old you are, you might never known these existed. It was the Wayne's World VCR VHS board game. Are you familiar with VCR board games? Yes, yes. <laughs> okay. and, I, and I vaguely remember this one. This is one that's standing out to me because... I remember seeing the game, I believe, either in stores or seeing like an ad for it. But at the time, it being something that was kind of new. Yeah, they they kind of kicked off in the it was either really late 80s or really early 90s and fizzled out pretty quick. There's only three that I really remember having these VCR games. What the other ones were uh, RoboCop and Clue and the Clue one's actually pretty decent. But uh, Wayne's World, the VCR game. For those listeners who don't know what a VCR game is, it's a, a game where you have a board game, you know, all your pieces and stuff like that. But you also have this VHS tape that you got to put in the VCR and then you pause it when it tells you to pause it. This game, I remember getting it for Christmas that year. We were super excited to play it because my brother and I both loved Wayne's World. And I got to tell you, not a great game because both Wayne and Garth <laughs> are in the game, but they both look super bored and they were never in the same place at the same time. You could tell they recorded these while they were like on other sets for other things. <laughs> and um, VCR games are kind of useless after the first time because it never changes unless you just go back a year later after you've forgotten everything. It was basically a normal board game. And as the player, you needed to collect five party makers, a backstage pass and a date from the Babitude Zone, and then you could go to Party Central and win the game unless you had the Grey Poupon token. They really took that Grey Poupon joke to the cleaners <laughs> on this one. Along the way, you like pause the game and you ask questions to the screen, which had pre-recorded answers, so you'd, you'd like ask a question as if you were asking the question to Wayne. Okay, whose turn is it? I'm ready this time. Ask me a pop quiz question. Hmm... That's a good one. Okay, the answer is no way. Way? Way? No way. Way. The answer is way. Don't have a Harry, just party on. As if. What I like about that, uh, that game is that it's so dated to 1992, and it's something that is such a, like, a, a rich artifact of like when Wayne's World came out. Totally. There's, yeah, no, yeah, that's that's a great, a great pull. When you put the VHS tape in, it would have this f mouth and it was just a mouth, like a cutout of a mouth, a mouth that looks like Paul Shears, actually. 
and it would explain the rules, but it did it in a really um, offensive way to the to the watchers, like telling you that you couldn't read and stuff like that. I'm the mouth that's been given the job of explaining this game to you dweebs. Tune in. Anyway, have you read the rules? If not, put the VCR on pause, because once you start the tape, the game cannot be stopped. So find somebody that can read. No easy feat from the looks of this crowd. Yeah, if you ever get a chance, the full VCR game, which was only 26 minutes long, can be found on YouTube. I looked it up last night uh, just to get like a refresher and somebody uploaded it. God bless them. Uh, so, yeah, go check that out. The Wayne's World VCR board game is my number five. What about yours? All right. My number five is the Faculty Tommy Hilfiger campaign. I don't know if, yeah, I don't know if you remember this one, but this is one that I've actually, I've seen over the years pulled back up on Twitter or online. I was fascinated by this campaign as a kid uh, because I saw this commercial for Tommy Hilfiger jeans before uh, the faculty ever came out. It was probably a month or, or so uh, leading up to its release. And I was a, I was a big entertainment weekly kid. So I would, I would find out, you know, what movies were coming up. So I knew the faculty was on my radar, but I, I, I knew that Tommy Hilfiger, you know, jeans was really popular at the time. And this just seemed like such a blatant, weird cross promotion campaign with a genre film like Robert Rodriguez, the faculty. <laughs> um, it, it was like someone at the Tommy Hilfiger was, was pitching this and they're like, what are teens into right now? And someone else said, well, Kevin Williamson is popular. And then they were just like, throw some clothes in his movies right now. And, and that was like how it threw, it was thrown together. I, I don't know. The, the commercial and the print ad, uh, if you go back, you can watch the commercials online. There's, there's photos all over the internet from the, the print ads. Um, and they feature all the stars. So Josh Hartnett, Joanna Brewster, Elijah Wood, Usher, Clea Duvall. Um, they're all in there and they, I think the premise of it is kind of like they're doing like an, a regular ad for, for the clothes that they're wearing. And then some director just comes in and says, put some Tommy Hilfiger on them. And then it just becomes like a, a party. Um, <laughs> it, yeah. It's, what? It's, it's funny. One out three, David, take 10. Uh, two trap, two dog. I need color. One out three, David, take three. Uh, no, get that off. It's wrong. No time. Cut, no way! Take 22. What do you want me to do? Change? Wardrobe! Take 40. Give me Tommy Jeans! I need color and light! <laughs> Tommy Jeans, make a scene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's bizarre. Um, in the film, there's actually a character uh, that I, I learned about later when I was, when I was looking all the stuff back up. Uh, named Venus, who is played by Kadada Jones, who's a sister Rashida Jones, and she was completely cut out of the film, but she's featured in all the ads and the commercials, and I I remember seeing her in there, and I didn't realize this until years later that she, you know, I, I just assumed that she was a Tommy Hilfiger model, that they had just dropped amongst the cast, um, and then and then I was uh, as I'm going back, uh, I remember seeing the movie and you know. The clothing brand is featured in a bunch of scenes in the movie as well. Um, the you know so yeah, it was it was a really interesting campaign to me, and and so so this is not familiar to you. 
No, and this is this is a movie that I haven't probably seen since '98. So I I'm I'm actually this was on my list to revisit pretty soon because all I really remember from it was Josh Hartnett's terrible haircut, like he cut it himself with scissors or something. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's like he put a beanie on and then immediately <laughs> took it off. Yeah, and I need to uh, I need to check this out now that I know about this product placement. That's going to make it even more fun. Yeah, the the movie. Uh, I mean, in my opinion, it's it's great. It holds up as one of the better teen horror adjacent films that came in the wake of Scream. Um, it's also one of the most interesting choices I feel like Rodriguez made immediately after the success of Desperado and and From Dust Till Dawn. All right, great choice. I'm gonna have to check that, that ad out. Uh, looking yeah. forward to that though. My number four is actually right. After the faculty came out, well, the original came out in 1999, a movie that kind of changed everything, and that was The Matrix. Now, The Matrix didn't have very many movie tie-ins, but because of how popular it was, because of how much money it made, when the sequel, Matrix Reloaded, came out, there were a ton of product placement ads in here. And, you know, you'd think that's tough to do because the world the movie takes place in is so drab and the real world in the film is even worse. But clearly the film had a ton of money behind it from Cadillac. Like if you watch the um, the freeway chase scene, there's Cadillacs all over the place. But the real standout product placement is probably one of the most expensive, massively produced movie tie ins. And that was Samsung's SPH N270, also known as as the Matrix phone. A new reality has been revealed. The Samsung Matrix phone. Answer the call. So the first Matrix film featured a Nokia that had like a slide down handset and it looked like a banana phone but for reloaded samsung actually made a matrix phone that kind of like it didn't look like it had a screen until they pressed a button and the top half of the phone clicked up and then it showed the screen and the phone looked great it looked great in the movie it looked great when it came out but it it, uh lacked all basic functionality that most phones had at the time and in 2003 when this or 2002 2003 when this came out like Phones weren't super advanced, but most had Bluetooth, a camera, an MP3 player. This phone didn't have any of those things. And ironically, it didn't even connect to the Internet. So like it was a pure um, it was it was purely just for marketing purposes. Now, what made it matrixy is uh, it had a, that, you know, the med, the green code rain on a black background when you turned it on. Yes. All the menus had that on there. The phone was black and the buttons had green digits. Um, the like the name Samsung was only displayed on the casing. And then it was a Sprint phone and Sprint was only mentioned on screen if the battery was improperly inserted. And like when uh. you turn the phone on, the welcome message is shown um, like when Neo had his first encounter with the Matrix. Yeah. And then there were Matrix screensavers and... There were ringtones and stuff like that. It cost $500 when it launched. Wow. And it was a collector's item. So I think it was going on eBay for like a thousand bucks. 
And uh, I just looked it up recently, and you can still buy one on eBay right now for 250 bucks if you want a promotional Matrix brick. But yeah, the, the Matrix Reloaded Samsung phone, definitely one of the most expensive collector's items that was mass-produced for uh, the Matrix Reloaded. Yeah, as you're describing that, I'm I'm kind of remembering it. But I, you know, I had a Samsung phone, but it was not... It was not the Matrix phone, not not back then. That is that's wild. Yeah, you wouldn't have wanted it anyway. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, this, one of the things I like about some of these these items is it's like what makes them kind of worthy of this list is how absurd some of them are, or how how crazy they crazy they tie things into the movie as well. Yeah, no doubt. So my number four was from 1997's Men in Black. And this is the Ray-Ban sunglasses promo that they had. We are the best kept secret in the universe. We are your best, last, and only line of defense. That's why I call them Ray-Bans. Men in black. You know what the difference is between you and me? I make this look good. Now freeze. Men in black. The movie in theaters July 2nd, featuring Ray-Ban, sunglasses for heroes. Barry Sonnenfeld's sci-fi comic book blockbuster. Um, In the film, Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith, uh, they're wearing uh, branded Ray-Bans. They were the Ray-Ban RB2030 Predator sunglasses. Uh, Ray-Ban actually returned for the second Men in Black uh, as well in 2002, even offering uh, a free ticket promotion uh, where if you purchase the sunglasses, uh, you got tickets to the movie as well. Uh, what I loved about this particular tie-in is not only was the product something you could buy, but it was featured as an organic part of the movie. It, it didn't really matter that they were Ray-Bans, but they were, they were part of the film and they were important to the character's design. Uh, I think one of the reasons this particular promo rings bells when you think of Men in Black is that every facet of the film just points back to it. The sunglasses play a key role when the agents have to, you know, pull out their de-neuralizers and erase people's memory and put the put the shades on. Um, of course, Ray Bans get a big uh, showcase when Will Smith's character has his transformation and he gets that signature line of. Uh, I make this look good. And then uh, the sunglasses, they even get the name drop in uh, Will Smith's, the, the song for the movie, the signature song, uh, Men in Black, when he's rapping the black suits with the black Ray-Bans on. Um, <laughs> so it was just, everything was was synergy, you know, back towards Ray-Bans. Um, and it was, it was a huge success for the company because they, I think I read that they had a, a boost in sales in that specific um, model of the the Predators uh, from like 1 million to 5 million after the release of the movie. Oh my gosh, that's a huge jump. Yeah, yeah. So it was was a huge success. And it's just one of those where this is like a, I I had a a memory of this when I was going through and trying to pick, uh, pick which items I would include in this, which promos. And I remember actually being in like a, a lens crafters or something and seeing poster on the wall that had the men in black promo and they had the shades and everything so that was that was out there this is one that i totally remember this is 97 
would have been around the time when the mall in the town I grew up in opened. And my friends and I were always at the mall, most of the time to see movies, but sometimes to just troll around while we were waiting for our next movie to start. And I walked by the Sunglass Hut countless times and saw Will Smith on the side of the on the side of the wall. Totally remember this ad campaign. And yeah, super effective all over the movie. Yeah. Yeah. So that's yeah, that's my number four. All right. Number three. This is really going to go back to my childhood here. How long has it been since you've seen the first Ghostbusters movie? I will tell you, uh, Ghostbusters was one of the only movies that I was able to see um, during that first start of the pandemic when movie theaters were all closed and everyone was quarantined. And down here in in Southern California, where I live, there are four or five drive-in theaters within an hour. And drive-in theaters were showing rep screenings of just random old movies and Ghostbusters was one of them. And that was the the last, uh, last time I saw it and still a favorite. Love that movie. Yeah, I love it too. It's a great movie, but what it is not is a kid's film. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> you watch this movie and there's, there's all kinds of innuendo. It's, it's just not a kid's film, but of course, like the popularity of the movie just led to all kinds of crazy stuff. There was a cartoon that came out called The Real Ghostbusters, which was a smash hit. And lots of adult films had kid-friendly spinoffs. I talked about Rambo earlier. Rambo had a cartoon. Robocop had a cartoon. But The Real Ghostbusters was so popular that it changed a lot of things in Ghostbusters 2 before it went into production. And it worked. They wanted to make Ghostbusters 2 a little bit more kid-friendly and uh, Ghostbusters 2, like, smashed the record for its opening day ticket sales. The record would only last one week because uh, Tim Burton's Batman came out the next weekend and just <laughs> obliterated yep. that record. But Ghostbusters 2, on its day of release, its weekend, was, like, extremely popular. And there were a few notable promotional tie-ins for Ghostbusters 2. There was a Coca-Cola campaign where you could, uh, you could like, enter to win an actual the, the Ghostbusters car. And there was one from the restaurant Hardee's. They had like this Slimer Sunday, and they actually distributed this toy called the Ghost Blaster. It was recalled after they had put out like 2.8 million units, and because kids were choking on the batteries, it was like one of the oh, no. most devastating toy recalls of all time at the time. But surely, uh, one of the longest-lasting movie tie-ins is my number three here, and that's High Seas Ecto Cooler. <laughs> This summer, coming to a supermarket near you, there's going to be a great new high sea flavor with an outrageous food taste. And what are we going to call it? Ecto Cooler. High sea Ecto Cooler. Slimer's new food drink. You've been warned. I absolutely loved high seas ecto cooler as a kid it was a juice box from high sea i think high seas are still around they yeah, um yeah, yeah there's you can still find them in stores it's just a kid's juice box but this one featured an image of slimer it was a repurpose of high seas citrus cooler and although it had the slimer likeness from the real ghostbusters which was a little more kid friendly because if you remember Slimer from the first movie, he is not something that you'd want displayed on a kid's drink. Yeah, he'd be terrifying for little kids. Yeah, he looked uh, absolutely monstrous. 
So um, he was on here, but it came out with the release of Ghostbusters 2 and the drink did really well and continued way beyond the Ghostbusters 2 theatrical run, continued way past the real Ghostbusters run. Slimer was on the box until 1997 and then um, Minute Maid changed the name to Shout and Orange Tangerine in 2001 and uh, it actually came back as Ecto Cooler for the release of the 2016 all-female sequel. And again, for Ghostbusters Afterlife, it was brought out as like a promotional thing. So I sees Ecto Cooler. It keeps making the rounds. It's like the movie promo tie-in that just will not die. And I'm glad because I actually like Ecto Cooler. It absolutely shouldn't die. It's one <laughs> of those things that, I, you know, it's funny that you bring this one up because... I've actually been surprised. We haven't had any overlap yet in our lists, and this was almost one that made my list. So nice. this almost got on there because, like you, I I grew up with this, really enjoyed uh, Ghostbusters, but then Ecto Cooler was just like one of those things that you see in the market. You're like, I gotta have it, and it was it was good, and now it keeps coming back because of that nostalgia. It's like people who grew up with it, they're sharing it with their kids, and oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, I uh, last time it came out, I bought well, I bought some in 2016 when it came out. Uh, but I am looking forward. I'm sure there will be another Ghostbusters thing that comes out, and Ecto Cooler will come back out again, and I will buy some and introduce my kid to it. Absolutely. Okay. Um, well, my number three. Uh, this you know this is one that uh, you may have seen coming or, or maybe not, but is Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Their campaign with Taco Bell, Pizza Hut, and KFC. So my relationship with this movie has has been complicated over the years, <laughs> like, like many people. Uh, I I loved it as a kid. Stood in line for it, waited, and, and you know bought tons of toys. Um, fell out of love with it in college, probably like a lot of people. And now I've come back to it actually as one of my favorite movies that we've gotten from Star Wars since the original trilogy. Really? Yeah, well, it's definitely not without its problems. Um, there is this, you know, there's this thing about this this charm of George Lucas's weird creatures and interesting planet stuff that, that was going on in this one that I still, I genuinely dig. And I've, I've enjoyed it more as, as I've gone on. Um, definitely my favorite from the prequels. Uh, but if you were around for the lead up to the Phantom Menace in 1999, uh, you remember that the marketing for this film was ubiquitous. I mean, it was, it was everywhere. Uh, there were all the usual blockbuster ads and commercials and billboards, but then this had the N64 game and the action figures. And, you know, it was everywhere. Every aisle and every store had something that was branded to star Wars. And Pepsi had this produced line of commemorative cans and John Williams had a music video for Duel the Fates on TRL. I try to tell people, <laughs> you know, who are younger than me about this, and it, it just is not, uh, it's not something that young, a lot younger people can, can relate to. Um, but one of the things that episode one did that was unprecedented uh, that year was having this cross promotion between Taco Bell, Pizza Hut, and KFC. Um, so the, the parent company, Yum Brands, secured the star wars license and just went all in so they produced like 26 different toys across the three restaurants um i don't know if you remember this uh jason but each restaurant was themed 
after a different planet. <laughs> I do not remember that. So so Taco Bell was Tatooine, KFC was Naboo, Pizza Hut was Coruscant. The toys from each of the the restaurants were ostensibly related to these planets. And then the boxes of the toys could be put together. This is, it goes so deep. Uh, the campaign had also like a, a game uh, called Defeat the Dark Side, where you'd get these little things that looked like pogs. You remember that, Jason? Oh, yeah, of course I remember pogs. So pogs, the rest, the restaurants would have these pogs that you'd collect and you would, you know, there was like 20 of them. And you had to collect them. But it just, and every time, you know, you go back, there's something additional that you forget about that they did. They had these cup uh, cup toppers that were like these really like uh, detailed molds of characters from uh, from the movie. And there was four from each at, at each restaurant. These were like three bucks, and they were probably more substantial in quality than anything I've seen from fa- a fast food chain in the past twenty years. And and all this stuff is on on eBay now. You know, they right. had like posters that you could connect to make a larger poster pizza hut uh produced these uh pizza boxes um for obviously each size of pizza and each set would create a mural of characters from the movies it was just so comprehensive and there was a series of commercials for the campaign this is one of the more bizarre things about this campaign but you know obviously makes sense when you're promoting a movie um it had Colonel Sanders, the Taco Bell Chihuahua, and who I'm only going to respond, uh, going to call the Pizza Hut Girl, <laughs> fighting these these battle droids together in this final battle uh, from the Phantom Menace, and it was just bonkers. Somewhere in the universe, the ultimate evil stirs. But three legendary heroes have come together and will lead the battle to save the galaxy from the menace of the dark side. Right after lunch. Play Defeat the Dark Side. Collect cool Star Wars game medallions and you could win cash prizes, even a million dollars. Only at Taco Bell, KFC, and Pizza Hut. They went so far to tie all this into the movie, but I really, really respect the effort. That's a, a really involved marketing campaign. I mean, surely it worked. There were, I mean, the movie blew up, right? It was, it was huge. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, regardless of how you feel about the Phantom Menace 23 years later, you just can't deny the impact of this marketing campaign. And when I first thought of this topic, this was one of two movies that came to mind instantly because of how much of a cultural event it was. Yeah. Um, the internet, the internet and how we consume pop culture has changed how we're marketed to. But in 1999, we had this monoculture where everyone was experiencing everything the same way and through these same channels. So it was like, it didn't matter what you were in the mood for the night you'd go out to get fast food for dinner. If it was pizza, Mexican or fried chicken, you were going to get some Star Wars with it. That's so awesome. <laughs> this, yeah, this this particular movie tie-in reflects, I feel like, that time really, really well. Well, uh, my number two is not going to top that, but I will tell you before I get into it that I really do miss those um, proof-of-purchase giveaways. Clip a number of UPCs from this product and send it in, and we'll send you back this movie promo tie-in. 
Uh, and that was what my number two here is about. And it was for a film from 1985 that everybody knows called The Goonies. Now, The Goonies was a probably, I'm just guessing it was probably a really juicy advertising opportunity. Kids and teens were going to love this movie, but parents were also going to love this movie. You got a cast of kids who are going on a hunt for treasure, going into caves, going up against pirates. It was like Indiana Jones, but more kid friendly since there would be, you know, the the kid banter and probably less faces melting off. Yes. But um, there's there's a lot of room for advertisement here. And Nabisco paid $100,000 for Baby Ruth placement in the film, which I don't know about you, but whenever I see a Baby Ruth, I think of the Goonies. Are you the same way? Yes. Yes. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's, it's, yeah it's you right there with it. You want a candy bar? You do now. Look, I got a Baby Ruth, sir. Uh-huh. I understand. Whoa. Uh-huh. Totally worked, uh, but also didn't work because that candy bar is totally the worst. But <laughs> in in addition to Nabisco's $100,000 for the placement, there was $1.5 million tacked on for network advertising, along with a Baby Ruth Goonies poster giveaway at 37,000 grocery stores. So this is the kind of marketing that happened back then. And everybody planned on Goonies being a huge hit. It was a huge hit, although surprisingly, it was never number one at the box office. It lost out on on both weeks that it was number two. It lost out to Rambo 2, actually, and then um, just got drowned by a bunch of summer movies like Back to the Future that came out um, like a month later. But it still made $70 million total, ended up as the seventh highest grossing film that year. And there were a ton of different promotional tie-ins. There was a novelization, kids' activity books, all the normal stuff you would expect, action figures. There was actually a sloth action figure that was only released in Japan that goes for like incredible amounts of money now. But wow, one of the weirdest, just based on demographics, had to be in their promotional tie-in, with Ziploc bags. And this is my number two here. In 1985, you could buy Goonies Ziploc bags, and each package had a Goonies sticker that you could collect. There was eight total. But even better, if you bought three packs of Goonies Ziploc bags, you could send away for a really sweet-looking green Goonies reusable lunch bag. And I found Uh. a picture of a sealed version on eBay that you could probably buy right now for the low, low price of 300 bucks, And uh, this is a sealed version of the Ziploc bags, not even the Goonies lunch thing. Yeah. But the back reads, take the Goonies to lunch. Meet the Goonies, fun version of the old brown paper bag. Durable, high-tech nylon bag with Velcro closure helps pack everyday lunches with a little more adventure. So that's my, uh, that's my number two, the Ziploc sandwich bags with reusable sandwich bag giveaway this is this might be my favorite uh pick that you've made so far this is so (laughs) obscure but it makes so much sense the 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 whole like goonies novelty of it all and being tied into something like a like a lunch bag or like a ziploc bag that's yeah it's perfect yeah sometimes i just feel like it's so weird the places that these uh, movies are advertised and ziploc bags i mean hey Everybody's got to eat. Yeah, we forget that we forget that when, you know, we didn't have the internet, you know, everything was a billboard. 
You know, they had to yeah. use they had to use all sorts of things to promote these things. So that yeah, that's great. So my number two, um, I almost left this one off, uh, but I, because I wanted to do something other than another fast food promo because of my number three. But I got to go with my heart on this one. So it is Demolition Man and their Taco Bell campaign. The year 2032. The city, Los Angeles. The movie, Demolition Man. The restaurant. Now all restaurants are Taco Bell. Exactamundo. The demo deal. Buy a burrito supreme. Nachos. And a large drink for one low price. And get an official Demolition Man movie poster absolutely free. I'm impressed. The supply's limited. The conclusion, get to Taco Bell today. So Demolition Man, which I know has been featured on the show before, uh, is one of my favorite 90s sci-fi action movies. It's one of my favorite Stallone films. Just the campy world building and memorable iconography of everything. The the three seashells, mm-hmm. San Angeles, all of that just... <laughs> It just warms my heart with affection more as I think about it over you know the 30 years since it came out. Um, but the inclusion of Taco Bell as the triumphant winner of the franchise wars, as it's said in the film, is one of those standout details uh, for me from the movie. I love the absurd detail that the fast food staple has become an upscale restaurant in the future. Yeah. Uh, complete with, I don't know if you remember this in the dining room, Dan Cortez is like playing the piano and he's like, he's singing this weird rendition of the Jolly Green Giant. And then, and then, yeah, yeah. I have these visceral memories of seeing all of the Demolition Man art at Taco Bell, uh, as a kid and seeing the title on the cup and, you know, thinking to myself, where are the toys? You know, I'm like, you know, 10 years old or something. Uh, so it may seem to some people like the the lacking, there was something missing in the promo. But for me, the fact that the chain was so integrated into the actual film is what gave the whole thing impact. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when we, when we think back on it or when I see things on Twitter or online, the comment section always comes out with like Taco Bell or something about Taco Bell when we talk about Demolition Man. Um, and the, and the movie's promotions at Taco Bell didn't really extend beyond the commercials or the cup art or the, the restaurant promo. Um, but the legacy of this partnership has had something, has some interesting staying power, uh, because in 2018, I don't know if you remember this, uh, Jason, but there was a pop-up restaurant recreating the whole restaurant from the movie yeah. and, the, and the 20, 2032 design. Uh, at Comic-Con San Diego. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, and this, so this was celebrating the film's 25th anniversary, but it was also promoting the return of the nacho fries to the menu. Mm. <laughs> and everything everything from the like altered menu in the film to the restaurant logo from the film was all movie accurate in this Taco Bell in San Diego that they let people line up for and, and get to eat in. Um, Leading up to this campaign, there was also a commercial for the movie. And this is something I, I kind of discovered when I was researching this. 
There was a commercial for a fake movie called Web of Fries 2 Franchise Wars. <laughs> Are you familiar with this? No. This is one of the coolest things I've found recently. So I, I was digging through this, and I maybe it was because I didn't have a TV at the time, and I was just experiencing everything through the internet or through streaming services. But this commercial for Web of Fries 2 Franchise Wars is a fake movie starring Josh Dumel, and it is a prequel essentially to demolition man. And what? so there, yeah. And so, and, and in, there's also another commercial to a fake movie called web of fries. That is kind of like a, you know, a John, um, John Grisham kind of thriller about why burger, burger restaurants don't want Taco Bell, uh, to come out with, with these, uh, nacho fries. And it's just, it's hilarious and it's so bizarre, but it was just like, it shows the extension and the legs that this whole like relationship, which demolition man had. <laughs> that's uh that's crazy. I, I definitely yeah. need to look up those trailers. I have never heard of those. It's yeah, it's bonkers, but it's, yeah, it's very cool when you think about, you know, demolition man and the way it tied this all together. So this was something that I, I, I had to put in here at number two. Well, grand finale time, up at number one, I had to put one of the most infamous movie tie-ins of all time from 1982's E.T. This is this is just like Goonies, was another young adult film ripe for film tie-ins, especially considering at the time Spielberg had directed two of the highest grossing movies of all time. People were just like salivating to get their names into E.T. And from an article, I found an article in in uh, Variety magazine from 1982 that states that MCA's merchandising division has firmed 11 separate licensing deals based on the creature whose likeness is being kept so secret that even many of its licensees have never seen what ET looks like. Nevertheless, by mid June, there should be enough ET paraphernalia to open a small novelty shop. The public will be confronted with bikes, pajamas, candy, and electronic toys along with posters, action figures, bubblegum, and iron-on transfers. There was a, um, a Japanese-based uh, company called Everything Bicycles. They sold a $500 ET bike. Hershey's obviously had uh, the Reese's Pieces candy as a promotional device. They were featured throughout the film. They're uh, an integral part of the film. And there was an electronic learning device, which was marketed through Texas Instruments, that was not even in the final product, but was included in the original script. So E.T. comes out, absolutely crushes the box office, and so a lot of E.T. stuff was getting rushed out for the holidays, including my number one here, the E.T. Atari 2600 video game, which has a legacy all of its own because it went on to basically bankrupt Atari and was part of the cause of the video game crash of 1983. Only from Atari. Made especially for systems from Atari. The video game that lets you help E.T. get home. Just in time for Christmas. Happy Holidays from Atari. 
I'm going to keep this kind of short because like, like, you know, there are full blown documentaries on this video game. So I'll just say that in order to capitalize on E.T.'s popularity for the 1982 holiday season, Atari developers were given just six weeks to develop the game and get it on shelves. Six weeks. Uh, that's like a Herculean task, but they did it. They got it under trees on Christmas morning and Atari, they were already kind of hurting. The video game landscape had become too saturated at the time and they, they needed this game to be a hit. And at the time it was the highest advertising cost for a movie promo tie in ever. Atari actually spent $5 million on ads alone, including TV spots directed by Steven Spielberg and they sent buses driving around the country showing off the game. But the game was not a hit. If you haven't played E.T., the video game, just go on YouTube and watch a short clip of it. It's basically E.T. walking around trying not to fall in pits. And then when he does fall in a pit, you have to attempt to fly out of it. The game was absolutely destroyed by critics. It was the biggest video game flop of all time. It's consistently listed as one of the worst video games ever made. And legend had it that in September of 1983, after the crash, Atari went and dumped 17 trucks full of E.T. cartridges in a landfill in the New Mexico desert, a tale that was the subject of a Zach Penn documentary called Atari Game Over in 2014. And I'm not going to tell you if they found them. You'll just have to check out that documentary or do a quick Google search <laughs> over time. Several people have dissected the code and tried to improve the game which proves that its legacy is still going good or bad. E.T., the uh, the Atari 2600 game, is my number one. Oh, Jason, yes. I was, um, it, I don't know. Did you did you play this game as a kid at all? No, my grandma had an Atari, but she never had E.T., and I'm kind of glad she didn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, same here. I, um, like I said, I was probably uh, a little late for this because I was born in 83, so by the yeah. time... It came around to, you know, I remember the first uh, first VHS I got, uh, I think uh, at Christmas in 88, was the, the old E.T. VHS with the green spine, plastic nice. spine on the back. It was, it was like the, the brand new release of it. And so I remember popping that in, immediately fell in love with the movie. And a couple of years later, you know, hearing about the, the Atari game, and I knew, I knew a friend who had an Atari, and looking at old games and saying, Hey, should, should we play this? And, and him, him be like, no, you, you don't want to play that. And it's, it's not good. And so it was like famously bad. And, uh, and I don't know, that was, that was one of those that, uh, that I, I remember being just notably, uh, just bad over the years. <laughs> yeah. Infamously bad. Yeah. So it's funny. We, we went all four, uh, without really any overlap and, Number one on my list was E.T., but <laughs> I went with the Reese's Pieces promotional tie-in. Nice. 40 years later, the the anniversary of the, the movie, thinking about how impactful this movie was, the number one movie of the year in 1982, the, the flagship promo for me that, that still resonates in my head always is just that introduction of Reese's Pieces as the as part of the film's narrative and that's why when i talked about that criteria this one that is the one that checked off all the boxes et's back and you can see him for free 
When you buy Reese's candy, you can get free movie tickets. See in-store displays for details. Good. During the development of the movie, I don't know if you know all this background, but Amblin Productions actually went to Mars first uh, with a proposal to tie in M&Ms into the movie. The offer was immediately rejected, and it's never really been concrete. Why? I mean, some people have speculated that it had something to do with the script. Some people thought that, you know, being part of an alien life form story, they, like you, you mentioned earlier, they didn't have any pictures. There was, it was being kept under wraps. So it could have been anything as far as why Mars turned it down. Regardless, in my opinion, it's the biggest fumbling of the bag in the history of movie promo tie-ins. Because, you know, the the Hershey Company actually developed the process that Mars used to make M&Ms in the 70s and then did their own candy. Uh, it was originally called PBs, but then they changed it to Reese's Pieces. Um, quickly after it debuted, uh, Reese's Pieces was declining in sales. They really needed a win. And so when Amblin came to them, the concept was simple. It was like, we're not going to charge you anything up front. Uh, Reese's Pieces will be featured in the movie, um, you know, to, to talk about, you know, how the boy connects with the alien. And we're going to use this as this little prop in the film. And in return of the product placement, Hershey would commit a million dollars of advertising to Reese's Pieces simultaneously promoting the movie um, before Ambulin, uh, before Amblin could, respond with the completed proposal hershey just said bam we're we're on it yes we'll do it <laughs> and it's just it's such a fascinating thing because you know as i was going in and reading about this uh jack dowd he was the um hershey executive who did this whole thing and he tells the story but i mean i remember reading this years back about how basically he came home from talking to amblin and told the told the other people at the at the Hershey company the the CEO or the, the the president at the time Earl Spangler about this deal and he couldn't show them the script for the movie he couldn't show them any pictures of it but he was still you know confident in it and he's he, they said are you sure this is going to work and he's like oh oh sure it's it'll it'll be fine and he said if he had said no then he'd have to cancel it and back out of the deal um, they wanted to offer a t-shirt to people with a picture of ET on it. And so he asked Amblin for a picture so that Reese's pieces could create this, this promotional, uh, apparel. And when he brought it into the rest of the people at, um, Hershey's, the, the guy, Earl Spangler, he said, that's the ugliest creature I've ever seen in my whole life. And this is before anyone had seen the movie. So Jack Dowd has no answer for that. And, the room's just dead silent. But then months later, after the premiere of the movie, there's a special screening at the Hershey headquarters and all the employees are able to bring their families and they show them the movie. And at the end, it's completely silent and nobody, nobody wants to, to leave. And it's immediately erupts in applause after the credits roll. So Jack Dow talks about running back out into the lobby and he's seen all these people with like tears coming down their faces and the president Earl Spangler, he comes out and he is, 
He's obviously been crying as well. And Jack says, is he still ugly, Earl? And Earl says, ah, he's beautiful. And that was just like the high point for the whole experience for for Jack Dowd. Um, But yeah, it's like, how sweet is that, that your candy is now the emotional you know, connection point between this alien and this little boy in the biggest movie ever. This movie saved Reese's pieces. Like the candy yeah. was on a decline for a long time. And after the movie came out, it had a huge spike in sales. Yeah. So yeah, Dowd said later that like, you know, they invested a million dollars into it, but I think in the years after it, there was like 15 to $20 million worth of promotion for the brand. Oh. And they, the sales were like, something like an 85% spike. It was insane. And it's still synonymous with the movie. It's like, you think of E.T., you think of Reese's Pieces, and yeah, that is that is at its core what this list was about for me, was just like, what's something that, that just ties into the movie organically? Because you don't really feel like it's like a, a shameless product placement. It's, it's there for a reason. Great pick, and uh, I'm glad that we both had E.T. at number one, but with different products. That's amazing. Yeah. Any honorable mentions that you almost had in your top five that you want to bring up? I had I had a few. I'm interested to see if you, if you thought of any of these. Well, obviously, we were talking about how a lot of these product placements and promos were from the 90s or the 80s when it was happening a lot more, but the first one that like almost edge out, edged out of mine was... Uh, 2007's Transformers and the uh, Chevy Camaro, which oh, yeah, um, yeah. if you if you remember that movie debuted the fifth generation Chevy Camaro sort of redesign two bef- two years before it went on sale in 2009, and having this car that's essentially one of the main characters in the movie, and how you know it was the sleek redesign and Bumblebee is now like a hot rod. It was just like, yeah, it's, it's part of the movie. It's memorable. Chevy had this whole transform your ride sale or something in association with it. So yeah, it was a big deal. That was one that, that definitely was almost in there. Um, let's see here. Oh, who framed Roger rabbit had this awesome diet Coke commercial back in the day. And I actually think I, just like tweeted one of the ads recently for it. They did a whole unique commercial with Bob Hoskins where they, they filmed back in the same set and they had different characters interacting and they had Roger Rabbit with a diet Coke. And that was, that was a whole thing there too. Um, And then, and then the other one that also kind of almost made it in because I just, I felt like I kept seeing this on Twitter over the years is, do you remember the Batman forever McDonald's glasses? No. So they, they produced a line of glasses at uh, McDonald's, these drinking glasses that were um, almost like molded with characters on them. They were like these thick glass glasses, like mugs and they oh, had one yeah. that was the Riddler and one that was Two-Face and one that was Batman. And it's funny because they almost seemed like more appropriate for Batman and Robin because they had almost like an Iceman quality to them. Or, yeah, uh, I was going to uh, say uh, where they like frosted. Uh, I do remember these. Yeah, they, they, they almost looked like, yeah, like Freeze. And so that whole thing of um, uh, that, that was something that stood out to me and has, has kind of lived in my brain for, uh, you know, 30 years since. But yeah, that was another one that definitely stood out that I was like, ah, oh, we should 
almost made it in. They used to have really high quality glasses at fast food restaurants as part of their promo yeah. stuff. Man, I wish they would bring those back. Substantial stuff. And like, I mean, one, one that I always, I always think about that I was trying to avoid putting too many fast food things on here, but like McDonald's had like these Batman returns plastic cups with this art that's by uh, an artist named Mark Stutzman. He also did a, a line of Jurassic Park ones as well. That is some of the, the coolest art related to both of those movies uh, that just, yeah. Um, I did have a couple of honorable mentions. I remember when Congo came out, it was all over the place. And for some reason, they had a partnership with Pepsi and they put out these Congo Pepsi phone cards. If you remember what phone cards were back in the day where you could like call somebody from a payphone and it would take the money off the phone card. <laughs> that is wild. I don't remember those. It's so bizarre that they would have that like weird double tie-in with Pepsi and then whatever the phone card was. And then I had two fast food ones on on my honorable mentions that weren't mentioned. The first, which is super memorable, was Godzilla's 1998 campaign with Taco Bell. They had a ton of different, I think there was eight different collector's cups that you could get. And they had a commercial with the Taco Bell Chihuahua looking up at Godzilla. You remember that one? Yep. Yep. I remember that. They also had a, a cup holder that yeah. you would like put into your, your window. And then it, it was the shape of Godzilla just holding onto your cup. Godzilla's hiding, and it's up to you to find him. Just buy a medium or larger drink. If you find a Godzilla, use your decoder to reveal what you've won. Uh-oh. I think I need a bigger box. And then the last one, which has come out a couple of times, I think once for Star Wars, but the one that I remember was for Spider-Man 3. I think it was Burger King. They did black burger buns, like the black burger. And yes, yeah, the, the buns were just charcoal black. And they I always remembered them because they just looked absolutely disgusting. Yeah, yeah, that was yeah, those always seem like unappetizing to me. <laughs> totally. And I think that's why they didn't stick around very long. Jackson Boring, great list. We I hope that we brought listeners back to the past and I'm going to obviously have some clips in here from some of the stuff that we talked about, but I would go on YouTube and look for some of these old promos because they are really just a treasure trove of relics from a time that we'll probably never see again because marketing has just changed. Yeah, yeah. It is always fun to like dig into these things and find, you know, these nostalgic, you know, relics of the past. I that's one of one of those things that I love about Twitter is I will randomly see people posting stuff all the time that it's like a memory's unlocked when you see it. And you're <laughs> like, wow, I, I, I don't even remember that. But now it's like, bam, it's there. If you want more of Jackson, go to at Jackson Bourne on Twitter. Follow him. He's got all kinds of cool movie content. And you've been on some podcasts recently. Where else can people find more of you? Yeah, um, like yourself, uh, I've recently been on uh, Film Shake. Did a did an awesome podcast with them about Speed recently, and then um, also did the Soundtracker podcast uh, a few months back. And yeah, and I'll be I'll be posting uh, more podcasts as I'm on those, and you'll you can hear more from me on there. And uh, yeah, 
on Twitter. Cool. You will find all those links in the show notes. Do you have a favorite promotional movie tie-in that wasn't mentioned? Let me know on social media at Force5Pod on Twitter and Force5Podcast on Instagram, and your comment might just make it to the next show. If you liked what you heard, consider supporting the show with your hard-earned cash. Head to Force5Podcast.com and go to the store tab to buy a shirt, buy a sticker, buy something. And if you don't have the dough, Review Force 5 wherever you listen to podcasts and tell your friends about the show. Every single review helps me out on every platform. Intro and outro bumpers today come courtesy of Nate Spears. The top five list bumper was produced by me with music from Audio Binger. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and go relish some movie advertising from the past. Force 5. Hey there, podcasters. Bruce and Eric from Find Your Film here. We wanted to give you a taste of the sort of movies we cover on our show before they hit theaters or streaming. Yeah, we cover bangers such as Bell, Beyond the Infinite Two Minutes, The Long Walk, PG, Cycle Gorman, Titan, The Beta Test, Pig, Drive My Car, Riders of Justice, Coda, The Fear Street Trilogy, My Heart Can't Beat Unless You Tell It To, Uncle Peckerhead. The Gin. Killing of Two Lovers. After Blue. Mad God. Lose the Flower of Evil. And Red Notice. Red Notice? Well, yeah, they can't all be winners. Check us out on all your usual podcast sources. Look for Find Your Film. <laughs>